In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, with the possible exception of the story of the Good Samaritan, where you remember this despised social outcast is considered to be more virtuous than even a Levite or a priest, with that possible exception, I suspect that no story was more shocking to those who heard it than the one that uh, Donna just read to us. Um, The conclusions that Jesus draws in this story um, really stood the values of that day on their ear. But I think that through the details of the story as I unfold them, uh, we get a vision of God uh, that really speaks to literally every one of us. All of those listening uh, to Jesus that day would have been familiar with Pharisees and with tax collectors. You know the word Pharisee literally means pure, and that will tell you something about them and what they were passionate about. Um, So the Pharisees were like the moral elite of their day, Uh, more focused on the law of Moses. We've been talking about Moses more focused on that law than anybody else. And it was their sense that evil was contagious. So they tried to keep as far away from those who were less reputable as possible. So at the opposite end of the continuum uh, were the tax collectors of first century Palestine. No other occupation, more despised you know that when the Romans conquered a territory, uh, they didn't send in their own bureaucrats to collect the funds. Rather, they looked for these sort of opportunistic locals with very low moral standards uh, who would create a sort of franchise of their own, and they would collect all of the taxes. And it was quite lucrative, really, but as you can imagine, it also came at a high cost, both personal and social. Nobody likes to pay taxes, and of course, no one wants to pay taxes to their kinsperson, uh, who is going to then transfer some of those to your enemy. Some of you will remember, in World War II, the Norwegian term Quisling, which referred to those who sold out to the Nazis. Um, I suppose Benedict Arnold is about as close as we get to that in the States. These are the people who no decent person wants to be associated with. So here we have two opposites. Now, one of the things about parables, as you know, is that they tend to have an intriguing storyline that sucks you in. Uh, It's as though you were looking through a window at somebody else's story, but then, just as quickly, it's like the dome light goes on in your car at night, and that window becomes a mirror in which you can see yourself. So in this story, we start out with a little surprise, or no surprise, really, and then we move to a little surprise, and then we get to the big surprise. It was no surprise when Jesus said that a Pharisee would be in the temple, or that a Pharisee would say, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, because he's not. He is not an adulterer. He is not a thief. He is not even like this 
tax collector. He really does give a tenth of his income away. I won't ask for a show of hands this morning. So the first mild surprise in the story comes because tax collectors were not usually found in the temple, nor were they usually known for this kind of contrite approach to God. You notice that his eyes are cast down at this point. Um, the scripture goes on to say he is beating his breast, which is considered to be the center of um, decision-making for the Hebrews. And his prayer is very simple. He says, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. So here we have these two, and in this case, the stereotype of the tax collector is blown away. It is at least a mild surprise. But now we get to the real surprise, the earthquake, if you will. It comes uh, when we, foc we focused on these two opposites, and Jesus goes on to say that the tax collector goes back to his house with a higher approval rate than the Pharisee does. So I am just guessing, but my hunch is that when Jesus spoke these words, there was a collective gasp in the crowd that was listening. So to suggest that the God of righteousness, the author of the Ten Commandments, uh, would have been more pleased with this traitorous scoundrel than he was with this moral hero it simply turned all of the rules upside down. I remember hearing about this story about a restaurant. I think it was back in New Jersey. And they had just put in a new computer system where they, you know, they, they uh, tagged all of the different items. You know how you go and they swipe it and it, the, the, the price comes up. Um, well, apparently, a little before Halloween, some um, pranksters had hacked into the system and they had changed the prices on everything. Well, you can just imagine the havoc. I mean, a ham was like a quarter and uh, a bag of peas was like 12 bucks. The next day they had to close the store, they had to recheck everything. Well, that kind of disruption, that discrepancy between price and value, I think would have been the effect of Jesus' story on, on the crowd that day. Let me just pause here and say, I think Jesus is doing something pretty risky here, right? I mean, it would be very easy to misread this parable and assume that what people did really didn't matter. So, you know, all morality is just relative. So, take the Pharisee, for example. He really is better, morally speaking. He's not a thief or an adulterer. If we could just set aside 2,000 years of church prejudice about Pharisees, we might actually recognize him as the moral athlete that he is. He is the kind of person that society does not function without, and incidentally, that no church functions without. Every institution needs people who are responsible, who actually show up and do what they say they are going to do. And this guy is not just responsible, he is spiritually um, advanced. He fasts twice a week. 
He puts his money where his mouth is. So sometimes I think we have this notion sometimes that our, our finances, our spirituality, they're not related, which of course is as true, uh, as far from the truth biblically as you can get. Sometimes we pretend that. But the point is here, the suggestion that a person who takes their religion that seriously is somehow inferior to a person who has virtually no moral track record but only comes in at a moment of crisis looking for some kind of mercy, that is risky business. Helmut Thielicke, who was a, a professor in Germany during World War II, says, we could very easily superficially read this parable and come to the conclusion that a tax collector's humility is more important than a Pharisee's behavior. In fact, Thielicke writes a little prayer on behalf of the tax collector. Here's how it goes. I thank thee, God, that I am not as proud of myself as this Pharisee. To be sure, I am an extortioner. Um, it is true I am unjust, and I am an adulterer. But that's what human beings are, and that is the way that I am, and at least I admit it. Therefore, because of my honesty, I think I am a little bit better than this other one. I commit fornication twice a week. I, I do not suppose over 10% of what I get comes from honest work. But remember, I am just being honest, God. I have no illusions about myself. Therefore, let your angels sing Alleluia over a sinner who is at least as honest as I am and willing to admit he is a dirty dog and not trying to hide behind some kind of pretension like this Pharisee. Amen. <laughs> I mean, there is something a little disturbing, right, about making an admission of mediocrity and treating that as a virtue, about saying, in effect, you know I don't live by a high moral code, but neither does anybody else. If you've been around the church, if you have friends who talk about people in the church, you have probably heard people say, well, I'm not perfect, I don't pretend to be, but at least I'm not a hypocrite like those church people. So we need to get beyond that kind of superficial interpretation and ask ourselves, what is Jesus really talking about here? Well, obviously, this Pharisee has reached a high level of moral maturity. He has established control over his physical impulses. He is the master of his money rather than the other way around. But in his climb up that spiritual ladder, the Pharisee has made one fatal mistake. He has taken his eyes off the goal at the end, and he has begun to focus his attention on those around him. And that shift in focus has two devastating effects. The first is he is entirely too proud of himself. He has begun to read his own headlines. Secondly, he grows complacent about his own need to grow. It's as if the Pharisee were a 10th grader and he's hanging out with a bunch of 8th graders. He says 
to his parents, I don't need to study anymore. I know a lot more than these other people. Compared to what is the crucial question here? In fact, in any developmental endeavor, the place that we choose to focus our attention is of ultimate importance. The sidelong glance is very different than keeping our eyes on the prize. So I'm sure every one of us here could give examples of this. Oh, here's mine. When Mariah was little, she used to attend dance classes at Borgo Sisters in Royal Oak. Some of you have had children who did this, or you've been to this, these other dance places. Um, to this day, this is one of my favorite images of parenting. All of the parents and grandparents, including myself, all lining up an hour in advance, cameras, video things, all to get the proper seating. So the recitals used to be over at Churchill in Royal Oak. Here's how the recital goes. One class at a time comes up the steps. They're tutus, all very adorable. And the teacher of that class stands off to the side. And as the music plays, does all of the motions very gracefully and all on time. And as the students are watching her, they do it perfectly. But every once in a while, one of them looks to the right or to the left. And however well that person is doing it, they are not doing it as well as instructor. In Mariah's case, Miss Christina. And they get all screwed up. And this is also true of us, spiritually and morally, when we look to the left or the right. And incidentally, this is true of us, not just as individuals, but as a people. So Helmut Thielke, as I said, was a professor. He was the chaplain at the University of Hamburg during the rise and fall of the Third Reich. At the end of the war, he said that he agonized, along with his fellow countrymen, over the destruction and the chaos uh, that they had brought upon the world. He noted that had the Germans stayed focused on the beam in their own eye, as Jesus called it, real moral renewal would have followed World War II. Somehow, though, he said the focus shifted for the German people and they began to say, ah, but the British and the French, the Dutch and the Russians, they're not perfect either. He said with that, any real quest for moral renewal seriously weakened. It happens every time we look around rather than ahead. It was the sidelong glance that Jesus criticized in the Pharisee who had, in fact, made wonderful achievements, but who had taken his eye off the prize. So the tax collector, on the other hand, is a different story, right? He has achieved next to nothing. He's like a kindergartner when it comes to moral development. But something has happened to him. Something has brought him to his senses, and apparently to his knees. We are not sure what that is. But we do know that sometimes this is the way the ingenious grace of God works. That God allows us in our freedom to use our power 
sometimes in ways that is destructive even to ourselves, sometimes in ways that causes suffering for those around us, until, like the prodigal son you remember, we finally come to our senses and we realize I am not the person that God intended me to be. I heard of this pastor who uh, had a family that he was working with. I think the wife was uh, a member of the congregation. The husband um, was most of the time a hardworking, respectable individual, um, decent husband and father, but he also had an erratic drinking problem. So he would go six months dry as could be, and then all of a sudden something would happen and he would fall off the wagon. He would begin to spend the family's money. He would, um, he would beat his wife. The pastor said he had prayed with this person multiple times, had had many conversations, never was able to break through. Finally, one Saturday evening, the phone rang, and so he went. The man had gone on a terrible binge. He had beaten his wife. However, somehow, this time, the sight of his beaten wife and his children cowering on the couch in one corner brought him to his senses. He realized he needed help. So the pastor was able to get him to AA, to people who would understand his disease and could then go on and help him. You know the very first of the many famous steps of the 12 steps is admitting that your life is out of control and that on your own, you don't have the power to correct that. And my hunch is that something like that had happened to this tax collector. So he winds up here in the temple, and Jesus realizes that while he has achieved next to nothing in his life, he is finally in a position where he can grow. Because our sins, because our achievements or the lack thereof are not the only reality on the stage of history. There is also a grace to help in time of need, which is available to every one of us, Pharisee or tax collector. So there are so many ways in which this parable, I think, can become a mirror to us. I'm wondering this morning if you have found yourself in this story. First of all, to recognize that the deeper issue in our growing is attitude rather than achievement. Really, don't you think the, that Jesus was both glad and sad for both of those opposites that day? I mean, glad for the Pharisee that he had achieved so much. Sad because he had virtually no potential for growth. Glad for the tax collector who clearly has a future ahead of him, but sad because he has blown so many opportunities. Or, secondly, to begin to ask yourself, what is the criteria by which I am evaluating my life at this point? Compared to what is the basic question for every one of us? Jesus came that we might have abundant life. But the reality is a sidelong glance can distract us from that wonderful goal. So the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, let each of us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, 
looking, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. Or, in case you hadn't noticed, perhaps a reminder that what happened to the Pharisee that day is particularly tempting to those who have achieved a certain level of moral development. I heard someone say that burnout is such a major problem in our society because it affects the most conscientious, the most productive of citizens. It is not the homeless man or woman. It is the head of the chamber of commerce. It is the person who volunteers on three or four committees in the church who is most at risk. We can get halfway home and then begin to look around and say, you know, those people, they're not doing half as much as I am. And we can get sidetracked from who we are really called to be. Or, and I probably don't even need to say this, the warning implied is that it is not up to us to judge others. If our reading of the parable is correct this morning, if we are to keep our eyes on the true focus, it is not up to you and me to judge where somebody else is in their process. For one thing, we simply don't have enough information upon which to judge that, to make our judgment. That's God's job. And God is infinitely better equipped than we are for that. But how easy it is in this story to think to ourselves, you know, I think that tax collector is just using another one of his manipulative ploys. I think it's just another con job. And how often have you found yourself thinking that about somebody? Where are you in this story? We have all of us fallen short of the glory, everyone. But there is something bigger than our sin and bigger than our past in history, and that is the grace of God. If we keep our eyes focused on that prize, then we can say with the Apostle Paul, not that I have already attained this, not that I have already made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. Amen.